welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get to this week's guest, I promised I'd share with you some of the most interesting data we gleaned from our annual survey. First, thanks so much to the over 600 of you who filled it out. Listeners in the U.S. and Canada participated. A little more than three-quarters of you are from those two countries, but so did listeners in the U.K., France, Australia, Colombia, Germany, and even Egypt. What did we learn? We learned that our audience values in-depth coverage informed by practice and research rather than celebrity and auction results. We kind of knew that. Heck, three-quarters of you attended one or zero art fairs last year, and if that doesn't prove the point, what does, right? Almost half of you belong to multiple art museums. You're showing that focusing on art's intersection with celebrity in the art market isn't the only way to cover art, and for that, I'm really grateful. We also learned that 60% of you want us to broaden our focus beyond North America, and more commenters added this to the end of the survey than provided any other single comment. That was a surprise, but maybe it shouldn't have been given how many of you are outside of North America. We'll definitely look into how we might do that. We also learned that you find our advertisements useful sources of information. In fact, 90% of you want us to broaden our advertiser pool to include foundation funders that might promote the exhibitions they support, and 73% of you want us to attract as advertisers foundations that will promote their grant opportunities for artists, writers, and art historians. We'll work on that. What other media do you consume? The biggest overlap between our audience and other art media's audience was with hyperallergic, and by a lot. Our audience overlap with hyperallergic is six times larger than any other overlap. What other podcasts do you all listen to? Brian Alfred's Sound and Vision, which we've featured on the Man Podcast before, and which features Adam Henry this week, and Bad at Sports, where Matthew Gerson is the latest guest. Most of you listen to us through iTunes, which was certainly no big surprise. By the way, please consider giving us a rating there. Aside from your sharing the program with your friends, nothing helps us promote the show better than giving us a five-star rating and a quick comment on iTunes. You also asked us to look into doing some new kinds of additional shows, such as a series of episodes that might focus on issues in art. We're going to look into that, and we'll look at whether or not that can attract advertisers' support. I thought I'd address some of the helpful comments many of you left at the end of the survey. Some of you asked for even more images of art discussed on the show. We certainly do the best we can on that. Not every artwork is available or even findable as a JPEG. See this week's coming show on Carlo Dolce. I think we're missing one or two of those works. Several listeners asked if we planned on publishing a book of Man Podcast transcripts someday. Who knows? It's not on the drawing board right now, but it's something we've definitely thought about doing in the future. Some of you want more interviews with artists. Some of you want more interviews with curators and historians. FYI, we try to shoot for about a 60-40 artists to curators and historians and authors mix, but to a certain extent, the breakdown depends on what museums are doing in any given season. Sometimes we just run in weird streaks, too. For example, depending on some scheduling issues, I think we're about to have a run of four or five straight shows with artists as the lead guest. Several of you ask for longer descriptions of each podcast in the various podcast apps. I totally hear you on that. I'm the same way. However, Apple Podcasts and iTunes limits us to 500 character descriptions, which is pretty stingy and not ideal. We upload descriptions about three or four times that long to our non-Apple outlets, but even so, some of them seem to cut off the length of the description. A couple listeners noted that women are underrepresented at most levels of the art world and that we should feature more women on the show. Would you believe that 55% of our guests have been women, 252 in all? I'd like to think we do much better at presenting the full diversity of the American art world than almost anyone else. 
Some of you thought we skewed Western. Some of you think we overweight New York. Over 10 or so shows, we probably do each and both of those things. But over the duration of the show, I think and hope we do more of America than anyone else. I hope, I hope. Finally, several dozen of the comments we received emphasized that you all appreciate that we go long form with artists and historians and writers and curators, that we devote enough time to our conversations with our guests to provide depth. That's why I started the program. felt like so much media, especially art media, was getting shorter and skimmier and thinner and less thoughtful. So it means a lot to me that so many of you value our zagging as others zig. As ever, thanks for listening, and thanks to those of you who filled out the survey. On to the show. This week, curator Eve Straussman-Flanzer on The Medici's Painter, Carlo Dolci and 17th Century Florence. It's the first American exhibition ever devoted to paintings and drawings by Carlo Dolci. Straussman-Flanzer is the Detroit Institute of Art's Curator of European Paintings. The exhibition is at the Nasher Museum at Duke University through January 14th next year. The exhibition's striking catalog was published by the Davis Museum at Wellesley College, which originated the show, and is distributed by Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for $35. It's pretty much your only chance at seeing and reading a Dolce catalog in English. Dolce was a deeply devout painter of sacred subjects, a painter whose oeuvre consists mostly of religious subjects, which may be part of why he fell out of favor in the 19th century. In addition to the intense and pious feeling within his work, Dolce's paintings are distinguished by exquisite finish and high technical accomplishment. On the second segment, Crocker Art Museum curator Scott Shields and I will discuss Richard Diebenkorn Beginnings, 1942-1955, which the Crocker co-organized with the Richard Diebenkorn Foundation. But first, Carlo Dolce with Eve Straussman-Flanzer, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents The Glamour and Romance of Oscar de la Renta an exhibition celebrating the illustrious life and career of the renowned fashion designer. Nearly 70 ensembles sourced from De La Renta's corporate and personal archives, the archives of French label Pierre Balmain, private lenders, and the collection of the Museum of Fine Arts Houston are featured. On view through January 28th. Visit mfah.org slash De La Renta for more. Celebrate Pacific Standard Time LALA, an ambitious exploration of Latin American and Latino art in dialogue with Los Angeles, on Saturday, October 28th from 6 to 9 p.m. An array of artists, musicians, and performers will join forces with Chicano artist and writer Harry Gamboa Jr. to recognize L.A.'s diverse communities and voices all amid the Getty's stunning architecture and breathtaking views. Learn more about this event and upcoming performances at getty.edu 360. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents The Medici's Painter, Carlo Dolci and 17th Century Florence, the first American exhibition of Dolci's work. A favorite of the Medici court, Dolci was a celebrated and popular artist in his time, but his original and personal interpretation of sacred subjects fell out of favor in later centuries. The meticulously painted and emotionally charged works in the exhibition come from U.S. museums, private collections, and major European museums, and allow for an overdue reassessment of an old master painter. Carlo Dolci at the Nasher Museum at Duke University, on view through January 14, 2018. Visit nasher.duke.edu for more. And we're back. Eve Straussman-Flanzer, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. 
In the catalog, you note that Dolce isn't taught much in the U.S., not even in surveys of the Italian Baroque, but that he's arguably the most important artist in 17th century Florence. Why that dichotomy? Well, I think you have to go back to the way that the history of art has been taught, you know, having arisen as a discipline in the late 19th century with some great German art historians, you know, it came forward as a discipline. And Baroque art in particular really developed as an area where there were two major artistic centers that were important and the rest sort of fell back in the shadows. So those two important artistic centers were Rome, which is obvious because it's the heart of the papacy, but then Bologna. And so there's a narrative that comes out of Bologna with the Caracci family, who are, are not as well known today, but are, you know, the other important sort of strand. And all other centers, I mean, so even places like Naples or Genoa, do not come into the narrative. So a narrative emerges that Florence was great in the Renaissance period. And then as we move into the Baroque, you really see dominance, you know, in Rome and in, in uh, Bologna. And that in the 17th century, in the words of, of another writer, Florence becomes sort of considered this stagnant backwater and the artists that come from it sort of derivative rather than visionary in their own right. So when did that narrative begin to be challenged? Well, I mean, there are certain strands that are challenged in different countries. I would say in the United States, you know, that is still the dominant narrative, the way that I was taught, the way that if you took a Baroque art course today, that would still be the dominant narrative because those who wrote the textbooks, the famous art historian Rudolf Wittkover and beyond, that's the dominant narrative that is taught in the United States. That said, there's a very different teaching trajectory in Florence, where art historians such as Mina Gregori, who had a whole generation of students that she sort of assigned to different artists of 17th century Florence, you know, allowed those artists to sort of come up. So there are monographs on them that were written by Italian art historians, and that's the material that we draw on, but it has not really entered the main discourse in teaching in the United States. So let's talk about Dolce's paintings. We could start with his, his subjects or the way he portrays them or his compositions, but instead let's start with his surfaces, with the, with the way his paintings look. What is distinctive about that? Well, I think there are several things that are distinctive about the surfaces of Dolce's paintings. One is that there is a love of detail, you know, a painstaking appreciation of each individual br brushstroke that then gets, especially as we get into sort of the heart of his career, this is not as true at the beginning of his career, where what I've referred to as his seamless surface. So it's hundreds and thousands of tiny, minute brushstrokes that give the effect of a surface that's seamless in the sense that you neither see the canvas or the wooden support that he's using, but often you don't even see the brushstroke. So there's almost an enameled quality to the surface of his works that is particularly appealing and particularly noteworthy. Where does he, he get that? I mean, I imagine without, obviously, being an, an, an expert on Italian art that Bronzino has to be one key influence. Yes. And I mean, I think what was interesting is that I had, you know, one of our catalog 
authors, um, Scott Nethersole, professor from the Courtauld, write on Dolce's relationship to Florentine art of the past. And I think it's important to note that Dolce is an interesting artist because unlike artists in the 17th century, he didn't travel, save uh, two trips, but only one for, for art making. And so he's really looking at art in Florence. But while he's looking at art in Florence, artists like Bronzino, who certainly had an impact, I think, on his understanding of portraiture, posing the sort of three-quarter length pose, the official court portraiture, because Bronzino was, of course, uh, an official court portrait painter for the Medici at one point. He's not sort of elided with any one artist sort of over any other he sort of synthesizes a lot into his own and creates something unique. I just don't think that there's, with him, you can say, and I find this convincing after having thought about it a while, that there's any one artist that he has an allegiance to. But he does have an allegiance to the Florentine tradition, let's say, which is rooted in drawing, disegno that comes out of the Academy of Drawing, the Academy del Disegno, that is founded under Cosimo I, where you draw extensively before painting, and that then the outlines of all your forms are clear in the final composition, right? So that is something that is embedded and ingrained in him from an early age, at a moment in the 17th century where artists are actually turning in another direction. So he's actually not riding sort of the popular wave of art making in the period, but he's doing his own thing, but at such a high level that he generates interest and, and extensive patronage. Speaking of, of that very same essay, I, again, not being an Italian specialist, was surprised to see that Fra Angelico was so important to Dolce. How so? Well, I think, first of all, Fra Angelico being Fra sort of a, a monk in his religious affinities was something that for Dolce, given his, it, it, it would, it's hard to emphasize how strong his faith was. <laughs> and, and by he, you mean Dolce. Exactly. Dolce's faith, you know, so that sort of connection to a faith and sort of painting within a faith. And then this idea of the sort of Beato Angelico, creating these sort of otherworldly in their beauty works. Now, in a very sort of different style than Fra Angelico, right? But I think that sort of quality of otherworldly beauty is something that the two artists share. You mentioned Dolce's piety and his, his own intense religious faith. There aren't just a lot of religious subjects in Dolce's oeuvre. There are you know, a lot of hyper-pious, if you will, treatments of religious subjects. Is he responding to collectors or specific churches with those really intense upward heavenly gazes? Or is that, or, or do we think that's a reflection of his own piety? It's a great question. I mean, I think it's a combination of both. But I would say that the emphasis in terms of the creation of his works is really stemming primarily, first and foremost, from his own piety. You know, at a certain point in his career, he sort of swears off all secular subject matter, including portraiture, you know, to only attend to doing religious subject matter. And I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize, and this is really fascinating, but on the reverse of a lot of his paintings, on the backs of stretchers and online canvases, you can see that there are prayers on the back, other, you know, passages from the Psalms on the back. More 
more so than any other artist of the period. So that in a certain way, one can see, and I mean, I think this is hard to convey to people who may not be coming from a religious background. I mean, I personally am not, you know, religious either, but that, that there's this sense that the creation of these works of art is like a prayer session for him. And I think that's really true. And I think what becomes so then moving for the viewer, whether you have a particular religious devotion or not, or even agnostic, atheist, anything, is that that sort of intensity, which he brings to the creation of these works as sort of a meditation even, if we don't want to say prayer, is that there's so much feeling embedded in them. And that the detail is connected and intertwined and interwoven with feeling. And for some people, that level of emotion may be too much. And I think what's interesting to me is in getting to know him, it's a sincerity. And I think for a lot of people, it's too much. And that turns to saccharine. Now it turns to saccharine for different people in different ways at different cultural moments. But I think that all of those works are, are sincere. And I think that's really one of the hardest things for an audience today to contend with. I'm glad you brought up the handwritten text, the prayers on, on the back of many Dolce paintings. There's a great picture in the catalog of the back of a National Gallery in London painting uh, that we'll try to, try to have on manpodcast.com that shows, <laughs> I mean, you know, we're not talking about an eight-word prayer. We're talking about a short book on the back of a, of a, 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 a piece panel here. Have you read any of these? What, what, is he, what is he saying? Are they related to the subject of the painting? No, no, they're not. So, I mean, what's interesting is that these religious texts, you know, some are directly related to the Bible, and then some of them are related to more popular prayers of the period. And what's fascinating, too, in addition to that, is sort of thinking about their placement and who are they for? You mean the text itself? Yeah, the text itself, because once the painting goes on the wall, no one can see it. So... It's sort of one of those things. I mean, you know, there's certain frescoes in Florence or throughout Italy where it's always fascinating. I don't know if you've ever been on scaffolding when they're restoring a fresco. And I remember once in Santa Croce, and there's this level of detail, you know, one chapel where you see little fish and everything. But like when you're on the top level of the scaffolding near the, the, the ceiling of the church. And you're like, well, who? And it's sort of like, and one of the answers was like, well, maybe it's for God's eyes, right? That, that's always this sort of answer, which I find slightly satisfying, but can't sort of be the whole picture. So when you think of, you know, these prayers on the back, I don't know, is it another way of sort of mark making for the artist sort of like leaving his mark because there, in addition to prayers, often there's also tallying of debts, you know, and sort of how much he's owed by the patron of a painting. There's other things that sort of note when he started and finished the painting. And so the backs of the paintings become these sort of fascinating repositories for his life that sheds light on the painting. I mean, there's another more sort of cynical way of looking at it. It's not for God's eyes, but really 
as a historical record. You know, what better way to sort of leave information, sort of understanding that if you leave it with the painting, it's most likely to be passed down through history. I don't know. And that, that sense of him wanting to be known as a pious painter in a certain sense, or the prayers that he may have sort of repeated as you would with rosary beads while he was painting would be known to those in generations to come. I, you know, it's, it's not clear. And I actually think that this needs to be thought out further, but these are all possibilities. But it's truly fascinating to, to sort of reckon with it. And I mean, the, the situation with the dates is really fascinating because, you know, we know then sometimes how long it took him to complete paintings and how slow a painter he was. So it may just be the paintings you were able to get for the show, but it looks, flipping through the plates in the catalog, like Dolce zoomed in on subjects. I don't want to say sitters, but, but you know, the, the, the subject of his painting, more than I can think of, of 16th or 17th century Italian painters doing. There's no hint of landscape behind anybody, almost. These are, these are more zoomed in even than three-quarter views. Is he zooming in on his subjects more? Is that, should we read piety into that? Or am I completely wrong? Well, I mean, I would say two things to that. I mean, I think, you know, he certainly did incorporate landscape into some of his paintings. One of his earliest paintings of Debardi that's in the Uffizi Gallery today, there's certainly, you know, that sort of master of the hunt and you see in the background landscape. And then in one of my favorite paintings by Dolce, the St. Dominic, you see extensive landscape. And I think that's one of his most extraordinary paintings. But I think your point about zooming in is a good one. But I think that that's really the sensibility of the Baroque period, right? So, you know, when you move from the Renaissance, where you have this sort of greater remove between the viewer and the, the subject of the painting, in the Baroque period, it's all about bringing the subject closer to the picture plane, enlarged so that it's, quote-unquote, closer to the viewer. Of course, it's, it's, it's not because you're still dealing with a, a two-dimensional surface, but that sort of drama, you know, that sort of emotion that is creating the figure so large in space is really part of, I think, the Baroque period and its sort of interest in really inspiring a certain type of emotional reaction from the viewer. Dolce's art seems to have figured in a lot more literature and writing than we might expect of a 17th century Florentine painter. Why? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a really good point. And I think there's several ways of answering that. He does appear in a lot of literature. And I see the first way of answering that is to say that, you know, Dolce was very popular in the 17th century. He was one of the first Italian artists to be brought to England in the 17th century. So his works entered English collections in the 17th century, not the 18th century, when we think of the Grand Tour and all the British gentlemen going and collecting, whether it was Veduti or View paintings by Canaletto, etc., but that his work came earlier. So when travel writers are going to the great homes in England, whether you're seeing a Dolce or a Dolce copy, 
you're seeing dolces everywhere in England. And that's sort of still the case. So there was a taste and an interest in dolce in England that I think in a certain way never waned, but that doesn't mean that he entered into the critical discourse about art in a favorable manner. And I would say that in terms of collecting, even in the U.S., and False Dawn by Edith Warren is just one of my favorite texts ever, in terms of thinking about the history of collecting Italian art in America, but also sort of Anglo-American you know, where it looks at the development of the collecting of the so-called primitives or gold ground paintings that come starting around 1850, but that prior to that, Dolce was one of those artists like Guido Rini, like Domenichino, like the Caracci, that were all being actively collected and that were sought after as desirable, right? It's really only sort of with the advent of art history and critical voices like Ruskin that Dolce just then ends up being completely written out of the history of art in a favorable manner. But that said, there had been a taste for him. So, I mean, I think there's sort of two things with Dolce is that he has always sort of been appreciated by lovers of art, because there is no doubt about his technical skill with his autograph works, but that he was also very an artist due to the devotional nature of his work that was also very easy to sort of demonize if you didn't really sort of wanted to understand him, right? So there's one thing, there's the taste collectors, you know, he's been collected consistently since the 17th century. And even if you follow the auction prices from, you know, 17th century to the present, he consistently for his good works, you know, makes favorable or decent prices. So in terms of collectors, he's never totally fallen out. Where he's fallen out is in the critical discourse. So those are two different things. And that sort of distinction is important to make, I think. Yeah, John Ruskin was not a fan. I mean, that phrase, excrescence and a deformity. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. I I mean, I I still, the joy. Among the travelers in Europe who found and was attracted to Dolce's work was about the most unexpected person imaginable, Thomas Jefferson. How and why? Well, you know, I think that what you see in that expression where in the letter where Jefferson writes about Dolce to the woman who he may or may not have had a romantic relationship with that's is that he was obviously responding to what I think is so important in Dolce's work, which is this emotion, you know, that if you open yourself up to it, and in this letter, Jefferson was wanting to present himself as this emotional being, I think, and to sort of speak about an artist that inspires that is a way of sort of bringing forward your own personal emotions rather than presenting your rational mind. So, I mean, in a certain way, I don't think it's surprising. I mean, I also don't think it's surprising and sort of fascinating because in a certain way, Jefferson makes this disclaimer, you know, that he's not that knowledgeable about art. He's not sort of the most knowledgeable. This is just what he's in sort of almost amateur terms, just responding to on a very honest level. And I think that that is is what he was doing. And I think that even someone like John Ruskin, in his official, and what I found so 
fascinating is in his official writing, you know, he takes this really strong position against Dolce. But I found this passage in his early on in a, you know, a more personal document where he actually is also moved by it. So I think that there's something about the personal nature of Dolce being able to be expressed in a personal letter, right? Which is not your sort of official published count. Like he had no, Jefferson had no idea that this letter would be published or that he would go on to such a position at at this point. So he's free to express himself. Had he been writing some sort of official document, it would have been interesting to see if he was more removed on the subject or not. Because Dolce becomes in a certain way a guilty pleasure, even to this day. Yeah, I mean, that's the point. That's what I was going to ask. If you think that some observers up to the present are almost embarrassed by their response to the intensity of emotion and feeling in the painting. I think so. I think it's really a lot to handle. And I think if you give into it, you're forced to sort of open up yourself in a way. Like, first of all, you have to really stop because they're so sort of detailed that you have to spend some time with them. And then in that process, you're going to be just flooded with emotion, which I think for a lot of people is highly uncomfortable. And so you could very easily have an adverse reaction to that experience. But I think this is the thing that all these art historians were telling me, you know, they're just like, I'm so glad you're doing this show. He's always been a favorite of mine, but no one ever really likes to sort of talk about it. And I was like, I know, because I mean, he's, you know, he's an amazing, amazing artist. And I think it's important for people to not be afraid of the feeling that his his paintings elicit and they don't have to be devotional yeah no they they all just there is an unshy i mean i think there's a painting that's not in the show of of saint andrew and preparation for his martyrdom i suppose it's yeah the martyrdom yes. of saint andrew yeah there's it's in in birmingham well there's several versions and 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 there's one in florence too yeah there's one in florence as well and that's a painting that has some emotional intensity, but also the composition is really intense. Three, there, there are four really massive diagonals and three all going in one direction that kind of lead you right up to a, a flash of heavenly light. It's, you know, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. And it's also, that painting is particularly fascinating to the martyrdom of St. Andrew because he also incorporates the portrait of a man from the Frick in the background is in there. And there's also a reference to Rubens in the background. So the thought is that it could have been intended for perhaps a Venetian patron. It's really not entirely known, but it's not only compositionally intense, but actually the art historical references are intense in that one as well, because he's really staking his claim, I think, in the history of art in a way that is not as overt in some of his other pictures. Finally, given all this intensity, why did the Medici own 30 of them? Well, it wasn't, the Medici owned more than that. So the 30 is just um, Grand Duchess Vittoria della Rovere, who was quite known for being quite devout herself. But the other members of the Medici family also favored him as well. So I think he represented sort of, as I said, this sort of finest level 
of painting and accomplishment in painting that was jewel-like, right? So that there was something as precious about one of his paintings as there would have been, say, a tapestry or the inlaid stonework, the pietra dure, or the intricate metalwork or some sort of metalwork encrusted with jewels, that sort of sense of collecting objects at the highest level is really borne out in the level of attention and detail in which he painting. You have a prized object that you can show off and that there's, you know, whether it's following a taste or a fashion, there's no doubt about his artistic ability. So I think that that was one of the reasons that he was favored by them. And that was a way in which by appealing to the Medici that then he was, I mean, they were really the trendsetters in terms of taste in Florence as the ruling family, that then he was collected so widely by the other important noble families in Florence. Eve Straussman Flanzer, thanks so much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. This fall, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Radical Women, Latin American Art 1960-1985 including more than 280 works created by 120 artists and collectives from 15 different countries, the exhibition highlights the contributions of Latin American, Latina, and Chicana women to contemporary art. Radical Women is part of Pacific Standard Time LALA, an initiative of the Getty with arts institutions across Southern California, exploring Latin American and Latino art in dialogue with Los Angeles. Radical Women, Latin American Art, 1960-1985, on view September 15th to December 31st at the Hammer Museum. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, presenting Cindy Sherman, Imitation of Life through December 31st. Organized by The Broad in Los Angeles, this expansive survey of over 100 works makes its only appearance outside L.A. at the WEX. From Sherman's iconic untitled film stills through her most recent series of aging divas from the silent film era, Imitation of Life highlights the artist's engagement with cinema and celebrity and her career-long investigation of the influence of mass media on identity and ideas about women. The exhibition is accompanied by a star-studded audio guide featuring the voices of Miranda July, John Waters, Molly Ringwald, and more, and it closes a calendar year in which every artist featured in the Wex Galleries is a woman. For more information about the Wexner Center's programming, go to wexarts.org. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Misty Kiesler Haunt, opening on September 23rd. The exhibition is curated by Andrea Carnes, who describes it as both beautiful and horrific, and who says that, quote, The series magnifies the strangeness of the existence of such places where fantasies are manifested. People desire and will pay for the sensation of fear, and that is a surprising and provocative revelation that comes out in these works. Misty Kiesler at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth through November 26th. And we're back. Scott Shields, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. In the last few years, American art museums have been burrowing into the Diebenkorn oeuvre to present big, major, splashy exhibitions of various periods of his output. So we've seen shows of the Berkeley years and the Ocean Park paintings and so on. This is a really different kind of show, kind of a big missing link. How so? I think the exhibition 
starts well it starts so much earlier for as the title implies beginnings but it really shows you where he came from and my goal uh, was to really look at how he got to be the artist he he was and you see that even in the earlier works you can go from one to the next to the next and you watch him evolve and so sometimes that's not as as Splashy. It becomes splashy as he becomes a mature painter. But early on, he was really working his way through art history. And that's the absolute surprise and joy of this show. This is this is the rare example where I get to see a show on walls before taping with, with the curator. And what jumped off, off of the gallery walls to me was Diebenkorn working through some artists that I hadn't expected to to see him working through. I've written about Diebenkorn for, for 15 years. We've done a bunch of Diebenkorn shows. And I think young artists in particular will get a lot out of the show because it really shows an artist figuring out who he is and what he wants to make. And I have a couple examples that I want to talk through. But first, is there anyone that, as you started working on the show, that it surprised you to see Diebenkorn working through? There were actually several surprises. You know, he went through Brock. John Marin was a big influence when he was in the military, and he was looking at John Marin at the Phillips Collection, and you can really feel that. I think the biggest surprise for me, though, was an artist named Hassel Smith. And Hassel Smith was a terrific painter, but not, not a household name these days. But he was so influential on Diebenkorn that Diebenkorn left California for a while. And he said, I had to get away from that influence. And so that was a big kind of aha moment for me, that it wasn't, you know, some of the ones that you might think of, like Clifford Still, who was also an influence for a while. Matisse, obviously, was a big influence based on the show that just happened at SF MoMA. But Hassel Smith, here's this artist that most of us don't readily know that well. And, and for Diebenkorn, it was a big, a big deal to kind of get out from under him. So we're going to come back to Marin because I think one of the just absolute did not see it coming <laughs> surprises of the show for me was the John Marin link. But I'm really glad you brought up Hassel Smith. Hassel Smith is, you know, a, a known figure on the West Coast to those of us who, who grew up in San Francisco, especially, you know, we know him as a, as a, as a painter and, and, and teacher and a really fine abstract painter. I think on the East Coast, the best place to see Hassel Smith's when they're installed is at the Hirshhorn. What did Diebenkorn see in Hassel Smith? And is there an example or two of a Diebenkorn work in the show that, that you think particularly engages Smith? I think the works that come out of, during his Sausalito period when he was painting his abstract expressionist paintings there, they have some Hassel Smith in them. They also have de Kooning's line sort of woven in there. But the New Mexico period paintings also still have evocations of, of Smith. And then he, you know, eventually moves moves beyond beyond Hassel, but that was a big thing for him. De Kooning, as well, he in 1948 had looked at an issue of Partisan Review, read an important essay by Clement Greenberg, and looked at some illustrations of de Kooning's paintings, and that offered him with Hassel this sort of departure from what had been kind of Clifford still dominated teaching at the California School of Fine Arts where he was. One of the really neat things about the show is how many of Diebenkorn's drawings, ink on paper mostly, that, that the show and the catalog uh, both include. And I was surprised by that. I don't, maybe I shouldn't have been, but 
a lot of black ink, a lot of emphasis on line in those drawings from the, the late 40s and early 50s. And I guess what we're seeing in those is a lot of Hasselsmith. I think so. And the linearity and the line in particular, a lot of that is also de Kooning. So it's kind of a combination of the two. And I think what he gets from Hasselsmith are sometimes the line, I think the, the little bit of a sense of humor that Hasselsmith has that a lot of other artists did not was appealing to Stephen Korn. It's not not necessary to take yourself quite so seriously. Um, so you could be a little lyrical and free. Um, I think that comes out of him. I think the de Kooning relationship is, is, is really important too. I think of the, you know, I think the three painters that Diebenkorn engages most in the first, you know, two or three decades of his career are Matisse, Picasso, especially Picasso and Albuquerque and, and de Kooning. Are there, Specific examples in the show of things, of places where we can see Diebenkorn learning things from de Kooning, because I think there are quite a few. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's De Kooning really starts to factor into the late 1948-1949 Sausalito paintings and, the, and his use of line, which there's a moment that I hope people can feel in the show where he goes from really kind of plotting things out in advance you know, preconceptualizing to attacking the canvas directly or the work or the paper. And you can feel that shift where he becomes improvisational. And he does that to a degree, you know, using some of what he takes from de Kooning's line, a little bit of Hasselsmith coming through. But it's also just his approach that he's just going straight at it without preconception, without any sketches, without his straight edge, if he was using one before, and just, just sort of attacking. And you, you can feel that that moment. I hope people go through the show in a certain order because I want them to really sort of feel that aha that I know Diebenkorn must have felt. And I think if you if you look hard, you will you will feel that as well. There are three paintings that might animate this, and we'll try to have all of them on, on manpodcast.com. In the show, there's a 1945 watercolor. It's a vertical. It's a landscape, green hills. There's kind of a blue, light blue road running from the middle of the watercolor into the foreground right. And it's a fairly standard thing with space represented fairly traditionally. Diebenkorn is not yet smacking things up against, smacking elements in the painting up against the picture plane. But by 49, he is. He's, he's radically flattened his space and, and enormously abstracted away landscape or anything else representational. And you show the 1949 painting in the catalog with a de Kooning that's at MoMA that suggests how Diebenkorn might have learned both how to reorganize something, but also how to abstract away from from landscape. Yeah, and it's it's really that moment where he truly becomes an abstract expressionist, and it's it's all based in improvisation and he would work and then he'd back up and look at what he was doing and then go in and go at it again and also this sense that happens throughout the rest of his career is this pentimenti of that he wants you to see what has been there before and he lets his revisions remain enough so you can trace his process and feel like you're painting with him to a degree let's shift to john Marin. maybe the biggest surprise of the show for me was <laughs> and still is, seeing a Diebenkorn watercolor or two that are 
basically John Marin's. Where did Diebenkorn encounter Marin, and why did he find Marin useful or of interest? So when Diebenkorn was in the Marines, he got uh, transferred to Quantico, and he would, on the weekends, go to New York City or, or most often Washington, D.C., and go to the Phillips Collection. And there he encountered John Marin. And the Phillips family was a very big supporter of Marin, so he had plenty to look at. And you can really feel some of those Marin paintings he was looking at coming through directly into the paintings he was doing of the military bases he was on. And the other thing that I think was important about Marin is that this whole time, Diebenkorn's reading Clement Greenberg's criticisms. And Greenberg is describing Marin as the most important American painter. And he's describing Matisse as the most important painter. And so I don't think it's accidental that Diebenkorn is looking so hard at these artists because he's being told these are the most important artists in the world and you should be looking at them. And so he does. And he he's pays close attention to Greenberg throughout all this period. And sometimes you feel it almost a couple of weeks after the article comes out, you can feel Diebenkorn trying it out. There's a 1945 Diebenkorn watercolor in, in the show that is particularly Marin-esque. Do you think there are things he learned from Marin that, that stay in the work into the early 50s, or did he move through it pretty quickly? I think there's elements that, that stay from Marin, and then certain things that go away entirely. In the watercolors that he does, and the washes and the sense of overlapping planes, a lot of that stays behind. One of the other things that early on that he picks up from Marin is that he floats the composition within the center of the paper sometimes even makes a painted frame around it. When abstract expressionism takes place, the idea of a frame was just intolerable. And so you had to like engage with the edges. And David Corn himself later says that he felt that he and his fellow artists felt that it was a cop-out to have these kind of idea of a frame. So that, that disappears. But there, is, there are some elements of, of Marin that I think you know stay with him, especially in the way he handles overlap and, and, and translucency and being able to see one shape below another, which goes back to that idea of pentimenti and painting and painting out, but not entirely. Yeah, often in Marin watercolors, you can see one color on top of another uh, Marin showing his work, if you will. And that's certainly something that, that stays in, in Diebenkorn until the end. And maybe the one other thing that the show got me thinking about, wondering if, if Diebenkorn took for Marin, was use of diagonals that don't make it all the way across all the way across a rectangle. In, in Marin watercolors, you know, there's almost never a, a, a diagonal that leads us into a painting in the traditional way. It usually kind of stops before it seems like it needs to. <laughs> And in Berkeley and Ocean Park paintings, especially, especially the Berkeley abstractions, Diebenkorn does that over and over and over again. Yeah. And, and the Ocean Park ones, too, becomes the diagonal becomes such an important thing. And even in the in the early abstract expressionist pieces, and depending on where he lived, the, the diagonal could have a, have a great effect. And he'd kind of move from, you know, an uprightness to a horizontality to an uprightness in, in some of his paintings that the diagonal made a big difference in, in terms of the feeling of, of depth and space. Another one of the surprises in this show for me, I guess, and it probably shouldn't have been a surprise, was seeing how much Gorky Diebenkorn was working through. I can't imagine he could have seen a lot of Gorky on, on, on the West Coast. He must have been getting it through the art magazines. What does he, what does he see in Gorky that he finds useful? I think the sort of floating forms and color comes from Gorky. 
and he was able to see Gorky in the East when he was there and I think looked at him pretty hard. So that does that does factor in and but I, I see it in the shapes and the way that they're sort of floating and then also and they're sometimes connected with line and I think that a lot of that factors into what Diepenkorn does. And connected with thick black line, you know, as if both providing some architecture for the painting that and, and, and fighting against architecture in the painting with the color. Right. And the and the color is sometimes hard to like. And you know, Diebenkorn was so good at color and such an innately you know, sensitive to color that he had to you know, sort of mitigate the the beauty and because he didn't want his paintings to be pretty ever. He was taught that that shouldn't shouldn't happen. But I think he was throughout his career sort of mitigating his inherent tendency towards beauty. I, I think in the first gallery or so of the show, there are a number of paintings in which Diebenkorn uses the same, all, all against one wall, if I remember right, where in, in which Diebenkorn uses the same very gross yellowish-brown color, usually in the same place, usually in the lower left of, of the canvas, and you can kind of feel him using it in the way you just described to kind of mess up and and deprettify some of the other colors in the painting, which which could sometimes, as, as with the reds, be kind of jewel-like. Yeah, he did that both through color and also he would introduce awkward forms. He, he liked awkwardness. And so whenever it was becoming too facile and too polished, you know, he would try to reintroduce awkwardness and that could be through form or through colors that were harder to like. And also in his occasional return to sort of monochromatic neutral tones and monochromatic paintings within this otherwise body of colorful paintings, you know, you occasionally turn back to more neutral tones just to kind of keep it varied because he, he was just really, he really liked color. So he kind of had to battle against that, I think, throughout a lot of his career. They're all from about 1945, and they have these kind of still-like forms being built up from the bottom center of the canvas with elements extending. What do you, and I think we'll have images of them on, on manpodcast.com, what do you think Diebenkorn is taking from still at the very end of the war, and does he hold on to it, or does he let go? You know, I think it's it's a sort of distinct period and it's there's some watercolors and also oils and they were kind of 47 48 he had seen a show of of stills paintings when he returned from new york he went to new york because he won a grant in aid a bender grant in aid and he went and he stayed in woodstock because new york said he was too expensive and when he came back from that after almost a year he saw a still show at the legion of honor in san francisco and he says the first time i went i was completely put off by it. I didn't know what to think about it. But the second time I went, it started to come together for me. Immediately after that, his paintings start to have elements of still in them. And these are the same paintings that he showed at the, he had his own Legion of Honor show in 1948, which for a 26-year-old artist to have a show at the California Palace of the Legion of Honor in San Francisco was a very big deal. It's a big deal if you're 80 years old, but he was 26 and hadn't even finished an undergraduate degree. He does these for a short period of time. I think that there was a couple of reasons that he moved past Still. One, his mentor was David Park, and David Park and Clifford Still didn't get along. They were 
competitors at, at the California School of Fine Arts, and they each had their own camp of followers. And you could follow one or the other, but it was hard to follow both because they were so at odds. And then still invited Diebenkorn to his studio to see his paintings, which was a big kind of you know mark of respect. Diebenkorn went and still said, I'd like to see what you were working on. And then so still comes over to Diebenkorn's studio, and they were supposed to have lunch afterwards. And Still says, well, I think that's a pretty nice painting. And Demon Gorn's always very humble and self-effacing, says something like, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm not sure the colors quite work, which for Still was like the idea of colors working was, you know, for something old-fashioned art teachers would say. And so he put his hat on and left. And that was kind of the end of that. <laughs> and, and, you know, at that same moment, that's when he gets his partisan review and discovers de Kooning. And it's also at that moment where he starts to attack the canvas or the work on paper directly. And I think that, you know, it still after that was a limited factor in what he what he tried to do. He found a new he found a new master in, in de Kooning and um, said, you know, I'm kind of done with still. And I, I don't think that that meeting helped matters. It was a pretty clear end end of that relationship. And there was never one much to begin with. And the other thing that's, I think, important to remember is that Diebenkorn did not ever study with Still. You know, when he came in, he was studying with David Park, and then he gets his Bender grant and aid and goes to New York. And when he comes back from New York, he becomes a teacher himself. So he doesn't get to study under, under Still. He really learned abstraction on his own. In the catalog, there is a photograph Diebenkorn made in 1962, which is a little after most of the show, but is suggested of him thinking about something. And it's a picture Diebenkorn takes out of, out of a plane window or a bottom of a plane or something like that. Also in, in the catalog, you reproduce a 1945 water uh, painting of a landscape by Clay Spohn, who, who famously taught in, in San Francisco. Are you suggesting, hinting, pointing to that Diebenkorn was interested in this aerial view or viewpoint right almost from the start? Pretty much. You know, when, when I first encountered those photographs, because there are several of them at the archives at the Diebenkorn Foundation, of him taking photos of the landscape, I was just blown away. I thought, oh my God, they look a lot like his paintings. And I didn't know that he did that. And so that was sort of a, a smoking gun. But there's a quote that when he was in New Mexico and coming back to California, he was on a flight and he said the pilot flew very low so we could see the landscape. And it was a commercial flight. He was sort of incredulous, but he said, it turned my head around in terms of seeing the landscape. And he's so much of what I was seeing was what I wanted to do. And so I think that that absolutely factors in. And he, he admits it and that these aerial views of landscape. And then Clay, Spahn's work, he, when he goes to New Mexico, he also kind of returns to landscape. And so there's something about the evocation of the Western landscape that really impacts Diebenkorn. You can start to feel it, but it, it's not just him. It happens to other artists as well, and that's that's why that one's in there, because they both end up in a similar part of the world doing doing things that have strong relationship, and they were staying in touch as well. Yeah, the, the first interest in aerial you know, painting from that point of view or making pictures, whether photographic or otherwise, that I knew of, of Diebenkorn doing was in 19... 68, when the Bureau of Reclamation flew him up over some of its water projects in Arizona. But yeah, this catalog makes it, and, 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 and the essays in it, and the images in it, 
make a pretty convincing case that Diebenkorn was thinking about aerial viewpoints in the early 50s, which gives us all a lot of neat things. Yeah, and I found I found the quote. He says, I guess it was the combination of desert and agriculture that really turned me on because it has so many things I wanted in my paintings. Of course, the Earth's skin itself had presence. I mean, it was like all a flat design and everything was usually in the form of an irregular grid. That's that's pretty good description. Hard hard to argue with that. Yeah, and it was it was nearby in in the southern central valley where western style industrial agriculture making the desert bloom was born and Stephen Coyne certainly would have flown over it and and driven through it on his way to New Mexico and and maybe even on his way to Urbana. Yeah, and he he also says and Phyllis also said his wife she said the reason that he chose New Mexico for graduate school was because he liked the landscape. Wasn't that he chose the teachers, although he liked Raymond Johnson quite a bit. But that wasn't why he went there. He went there because of the of the landscape and liking that. And to get that GI Bill money. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't hurt. <laughs> Scott Shields, thanks so much. Thank you very much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.